Our reading for today is from the book of Psalm, chapter 27. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with the shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody of the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O oh, God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. One is that um, we're going to continue to have the uh, Lenten uh, FGs following the service. So I want to uh, invite all of you to stick around, uh, join us for lunch, and then a time of, of Bible study uh, as we continue our studies uh, on the theme and the topic of stones. And um, I will not be preaching uh, on stones. Um, there are actually enough passages in the Bible. I could do a whole year's-long uh, sermons on, on stones. But uh, I'm going to be preaching from the uh, various texts uh, assigned uh, for the period of Lent uh, in the Revised Common uh, Lectionary uh, during this season of Lent. And I just want to alert you to that. And also, uh, as a reminder, um, if you, uh, I would encourage you strongly to... Um, be in here uh, at 11 o'clock uh, when service begins uh, because uh, we have uh, a time in the beginning uh, of the service, uh, an invitation for a time of prayer, of, of confession. And so uh, I hope you can work, make that a part uh, of the uh, service uh, as well. So I encourage you to um, come early uh, for that. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we uh, again thank you for uh, this day that you have made and for your word, which we have just heard. Help us now to uh, better understand this word, uh, to be encouraged and challenged 
uh, by your word and in the hearing of your word. Help us to obey. Open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 27 uh, is a very popular uh, psalm. It's been a source of comfort for many, many people uh, for many years. Um, I know for myself, it's one that has brought me a lot of comfort, um, especially verse 13, uh, the way I learned it uh, in the New American Standard Version, which reads, I would have despaired, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Um, Not just in the eternal life that is to come, but this, this strong sense that I will experience once again God's goodness while I'm alive in the land of the living. And I know um, during periods of my life where uh, just things are going really, really bad and, you know, there's nothing good appeared to be nearby, uh, this word really gave me comfort and hope as I look to, to the future. Um, but let, let's start with the beginning. The, the psalm begins with this strong declaration of faith in the form of this, this rhetorical question, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? No one. Then again, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Again, no one. Regardless of my enemies, regardless of, of war, no matter how bad the circumstances around me are, I will be confident because God is my light, God is my salvation, and God is my fortress. God is my light takes us all the way back to creation. It's God's first creative act, let there be light, and God's first gift to us. The, the God is uh, often associated with light in scriptures. First uh, Timothy 6 says that God is, lives in inapproachable light. Job 38, that God abides in light. Psalm 104, that God wraps himself up in a garment of light. Uh, other psalmists declare that the Lord turns my darkness into light, and that by his light, we can see light. And Jesus, of course, uh, claimed for himself his divinity when he said, I am the light of the world. And then he calls us as well uh, in his Sermon on the Mount to be the light of the world. As he himself is the light, the true light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not and could not overcome him. Light helps us, obviously, to see But light is also, in the scriptures, a source of joy, of hope, of warmth, and of life itself. God is my light is to say that God not only illuminates my life, but is the source of my life. God is also my salvation. God delivers me from my enemies who seek to devour and destroy me. God helps me when I am in trouble. God's power can be counted on. And furthermore, God is my fortress, and he sets me upon a rock to steady me, to protect me, to hide me in his shelter. As Proverbs 18 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. And so these images of God as my light, my salvation, my fortress, this is the faith of someone who has incredible confidence, someone who has experienced God's power and might and deliverance and is able to declare this this incredible confession, God is my light, God is my salvation, God is my fortress, uh, with the utmost confidence. Um, You know, I I think of our students, for example, uh, and the testimonies they give at their uh, confirmation service, 
or the kinds of vows we take at our baptisms, or maybe the kinds of reports that people give uh, after a mission trip. It's, it's those kinds of moments of declaring the faith with this utmost confidence. Uh, maybe there are moments in your life when you are so certain of God's power, of God's guidance or deliverance, and all you wanted to do is just declare that, and as the psalmist goes on to say, and to linger in that moment, that nothing else matters, that nothing else was upon your heart, but this desire to, to continue in that moment, or as he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that that's the desire of your heart. You know, I think very few of us can honestly say that that is an ongoing or a constant desire uh, in our hearts. Uh, How often have we said that the one thing I asked of God, the one thing I have asked of God, the one desire of my life is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That that's that's the one singular thing that I want in my life. Um. Most of you have probably fantasized at one point or another about winning the lottery. Uh, The opportunity to kind of imagine that fantasy is part of, you know, um, the appeal of buying a lottery ticket, right? To to spend a few moments kind of enjoying those possibilities. What does that fantasy look like for you? What do you imagine your life looks like afterwards? This is, this is a, a bit dated, but in the classic old, old musical, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Tevye, the father, sings about what he'd do if he were a rich man. He imagines he wouldn't have to work hard. He imagines that he'd build a big house with you know, staircases, uh, one super high going up, another one even taller going down for I don't know why. Um, and he imagines like his wife would be able to yell at their servants, you know, um, Right? That's kind of the things that we'd imagine. You know, well, maybe not the yelling at the servants part, but you know, we imagine these kinds of you know, the houses and having people to uh, help us and not, being able to, not having to go to work and having to work hard, certainly. But then he ends the song uh, with these words. He says, If I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day. That would be the sweetest thing of all. That's not what most of us fantasize about if we'd won the lottery. To have the time to be free to sit and to pray, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, is not not on the top of our fantasy to-do lists. I know there's probably a couple of you here who would actually want to sit with books with learned men. But as a general rule, right, this is not something that we, we, we think about. Most of the time, most of us are so busy, so distracted, so self-reliant and perhaps so practical that we don't think and we don't have the time to waste to simply sit and gaze. We prefer to browse quickly, and move on. There's work to be done. We make excuses that we don't have time to gaze upon God, but that even if we did have the time, would we? Would we really? We're more like Martha who complained to Jesus about Mary who was just sitting there and not getting the work done. We make the excuses. 
But as we learned um, a little while ago from the contemplative pathway, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord is as needful as serving God or obeying God. It's an important part of what it means to love God. Uh, for you practical folks, here's what, it, here's what it means. John Calvin said that the most perfect way of seeking God is to contemplate him in his works. We can know God as we consider God's works. And what are God's works? Well, the world, nature, beauty, creation, all of it. But a greater and more clear work of God is the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. We know from Moses' experience that no one can see God. No one can see God's face and live. But still, John 1.18 reminds us that while no one has seen God, God's only begotten Son has made him known to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God has made his light to shine out of the darkness into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have the hope that one day we will see face to face to be fully known, to fully know as even, even as we are fully known. So we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord the word may flesh through the scriptures in contemplating Jesus. Uh, you know, th- that's why we have Bible study and quiet times and things like that. It's, it's not to you know, learn more about the Bible. It's to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To know God in a, in a deeper way. That's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. To know Christ. And we know Christ primarily through the scriptures. But then the psalmist gives us another important clue. His desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Like we just sang, uh, I'd love to, I forgot the words already, but the song we just sang, right? Love to be in your house, O Lord, right? I love to be in your house, O Lord. That, that's what the psalmist wants. His desire to gaze upon God is rooted in the house of God in the tabernacle, or uh, in the temple. It's, it's, the, it's the same desire that we see in Psalm 23, for example, uh, which ends with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, for the psalmist and in the scriptures, it's very hard in the Old Testament to separate the worship of God in the temple with the worship of God. It's very hard to separate out the worship of God in the temple with just the worship of God, right? Here it says it's in the temple that he wants to behold the beauty of the Lord. It's in the tent that is in the tabernacle where he will lift up his voice in joyful praise. The worship of God is in the context of the sanctuary in the temple of God or in the tabernacle. Uh, I've said before to you um, multiple times now that there is something about experiencing God in a church together in this particular space that you cannot do at home alone just in your imaginations. If it were just a matter of learning things about God, yeah, you, you could do that. You could lie in bed, uh, read some books, uh, listen to other Bible teachers and preachers and, you know, and get more out of it, you, frankly. You know? There are be- better things out there and you could learn uh, things like that. 
you could listen to better music, right? You could. You could eat a better meal. You could have better friends, people that you like, only the people that you like come over and have better fellowship. But, but, there is something about seeking God's face together in a church, together. Something about sharing communion, about singing together, about hearing the word together, about sharing a meal and conversation together that brings us an experience of God that you cannot duplicate or experience alone at home. You can't. There is something about the reality of faith that must be embodied, incarnated in the sanctuary, in the corporate body of God's people together. For where two or three are gathered together, there am I in their midst. Um, you know, just this morning, uh, we had a, a membership class before service. And, um, you know, we got to, to hear a, a brief testimony about, uh, about this couple. And, and afterwards, you know, one of the uh, members of our session was just, just really just overwhelmed by that time together. I mean, uh, n- no offense to the couple, but their testimony wasn't really that exciting. It was kind of like, you know, <laughs> there was no like this incredibly traumatic, dramatic kind of uh, storytelling. But, but just being together and hearing that story triggered something and, and there was this, this movement of the spirit. And you, that can't happen alone. When you see the spirit moving in people that, that you have come to know over many, many years, there's something about an experience of God that, 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 can't be, that can't be had alone or virtually. There's, there's something about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord together. Um, and for the psalmist, it's, it's unimaginable that you can separate the two. Uh, C.S. Lewis really helped me out here. Uh, in his reflections on the Psalms, he has a chapter where he gives this illustration about a boy, a very devout boy, uh, who sang a song that he made up on Easter morning that goes, chocolate eggs and Jesus risen. That's all the lyrics. I'm trying to imagine what the tune goes like. Uh, so I read that and I think, oh, that, that, those are terrible lyrics. Right? Maybe the tune is better, but those are terrible lyrics. Chocolate eggs and Jesus risen. Easter, right? Um, But here's what Lewis says about that. He says, this seems to me, for his age, both admirable poetry and admirable piety. And what he means is this. The child has this sense of the unity between the physical and what we would label as the spiritual, right? Right? We, we separate out what we would call the spiritual joy and the knowledge of knowing the resurrection versus the temporal, physical joy of a good bar of chocolate. Right? We, 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 we can see how they can be connected, but you know, the resurrection is so much better. Like we, and we don't need the chocolate to enjoy or to appreciate the resurrection. But for the child... There is no separation. There is a unity 
there's a unity. And so even though we tend to distinguish between the forms and the rituals of religion with what we would think of as a spiritual or higher reality, what we think of God's character or God's qualities as separate from the things that we have in worship, um, right? Like, you and I can contemplate upon God or to uh, think about God without things, to help, right? We don't need a Bible even. We don't need a communion table. We don't need to be in a, a physical space. We can just, just be anywhere and dwell and, and think about the beauty of God. We're, we're able to do that. We can take flights with our imaginations and, and, and imagine God in our minds. We don't need these things. But for this child, right, he, he can't separate out the joy of the Easter Sunday without the chocolates. Right? And so some of us might look at it and go, well, that's because he's, you know, he's, he's a little kid. And you know, when he gets older, he'll realize that the resurrection is so much better than the chocolate. And he can, he can make that distinction. But for the ancient peoples, uh, certainly the psalmists, it, it wasn't like that. They were more like the child. That's what Lewis says. There is no separation between the dancing and the trumpets and the worship in the temple with abstract thoughts about the beauty of God. There is no separation between the physical realities of the temple and the kinds of things one might imagine about God. And that's why when the psalmist, when they write about this longing for Jerusalem or thirsting for God, it really is almost a kind of a physical, a literal sense of longing because to them, it's not separable. To experience God meant to be in the place that they understood where God to be, that is, in the temple. With all the sights and all the noise of worship. With all the blood, with all the meat roasting on the altar. All of it. Not just in some thought in our minds, but in that space with all of it. That's where God is. And that's where the beauty of God is to be gazed upon. And, and so, you know, it, it makes what Jesus said about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and not just in a particular location, even more radical. Certainly we, we worship God in the spirit and in truth. But that is never to suggest that we worship God in the absence of our bodies. That somehow we are to worship God as, you know, dismembered beings. There, maybe for the ancients, there was this danger of equating the physical or substituting the physical for God. But for us, we're, we have the equal danger at the opposite end of making God so abstract apart from the physical realities. Um, there is a need for the concrete, for the physical, and, and I would argue a, an even greater need because we live in such an increasingly virtual reality. So in these first six verses, the psalmist recalls with great confidence this desire, this remembrance of seeking God in the temple, assuming he was with others. But then in the next six verses, the tone shifts quite dramatically. Instead of confidence, there is fear and uncertainty introduced. Instead of a sure desire for God, there is this fear of God's hiding and abandonment even. 
there is such a shift that some scholars think that the first six verses and the next six are two separate psalms that somehow got uh, amount, uh, put together at some, at some point. But I, but I don't think that's right. Um, I think what the psalmist is experiencing is exactly what we all go through with our own faiths. That we have these moments where we can make these declarations of, of trust and confidence, and then we have other moments of, of doubt and discouragement as we try to live out our confession. In the first six verses, you notice that the psalmist talked about God. He spoke of God in the third person as if talking to himself or testifying before others. But then in the next, next six verses, he addresses God directly. This is a prayer. He's praying to God and he's asking God for help. He's desperate for God. In a flurry of verbs, he says, When I cry out aloud, be gracious to me, answer me. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away from me in anger. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. Teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. And do not give me up to my enemies. I mean, this is desperation. This is God. Why aren't you helping me? Not only is he surrounded by his enemies, not only have his parents abandoned him, but he feels that God has forsaken him and does not even hear his cry for help. There is desperate imploring. I'm trying, Lord, because you said to seek your face, and I'm seeking your face, but I can't see you. Why don't you help me? Everything he had experienced earlier of God as light and salvation and fortress, now he's feeling, well, if that was even true. And I think this is, for me, as I've come to understand it, this is where faith has to be lived out. You know, we have these similar fears. We have these same needs for guidance, for rescue, for protection, for safety, to be heard. We might be able to make bold declarations on Sunday, but most of our lives have to be lived in the day-to-day, in the midst of fear, in the midst of uncertainty. We live with the fears for ourselves, for our children, for our parents, maybe even for our country, for our church. Small fears to big existential life and death fears. Each year, it seems to me that there's more and more things to fear. Things that I didn't, things that I weren't fearful about before, uh, I find myself becoming more fearful of now. Even, even little small things. Um, about two weeks ago, um, I realized I'm entering a new zone of fear because um, my wife and I, uh, I finally decided that I need help with this. So uh, we went to the pharmacy, and we got one of those uh, weekly pill boxes. You know what I'm talking about? It's got Sunday, Monday, right? Because I'm fearful now that I'm not taking my vitamins uh, every day, or I took it in the morning, and I can't remember if I took it or not, so not, I'm afraid of taking it a second time. So now we got the pill box, so we put the whole week's worth of vitamins in there, and so now I know, right? Because I'm fearful... <laughs> That, that I'm going to forget or I'm going to overdose on vitamin C. I don't know. Um, but, you know, like, even something as small as that, it's just one more 
thing that I have to, you know, um, be concerned about. But you see here, the thing about the psalm that is, I think, comforting is that despite these feelings of uh, fear, of being unheard, of being neglected, of being lonely, of even being abandoned, you notice that he's continuing to seek God's face. In the midst of such struggles, he continues to cry out to God. And and that's really the key. It's okay, it's good, in fact, to complain to God, because that means you're still talking to God. The real problem comes when you stop talking to God, and you're only complaining about God. As long as you're complaining to God, you're still praying. And that's a sign of ongoing faith. That's a sign of growing faith. And I think it's in these spaces that we have to help one another. A preacher I read mentioned um, Dorothy Bass, who's a historian of American religion, who suggested that instead of asking our children, how was your day, and getting the usual and meaningless reply, it was okay, she suggests we ask instead, where did you meet God today? Where did you meet God today? Instead of, how was your day? How was your week? How about we ask, not just our children, but how about we ask one another, where did you meet God today? How might that help to reshape our imaginations? What if we ask that on a regular basis? Would that help us to move from positions of doubt and fear or living in that space toward hope? That's where the psalmist ends up. In the final two verses, there is a return to hope. He says that he believes. And the word there, it's, it's amen. You can, you can trust this. this. This is solid. You can take this to the bank. Amen, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's confident that in this life, in this life, that he will once again see the beauty of the Lord in the temple. Maybe he's already imagining it. And so he tells himself, he's able to tell himself, and tells us, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. This is not just a kind of, you know, uh, an empty self-motivational speech that he's trying to suck himself up. The word wait here is the word for hope. It's the same word that gets translated as hope. Wait for the Lord is to say hope in the Lord. This is not just a call to be patient and let the, the passage of time you know, move along. It's a call to trust in the Lord, to hope in the Lord in the midst of life. It's not, you know, our, our faith is not something that we declare once a week on Sunday and forget. It's something that has to be lived out in the real world. Between faith and, and hope, that there is fear that surrounds us. And how do we get through that? What do we do with that? How do we live that out in the midst of tragedy, personal and communal? It's the faith that gets tested. Every time we hear about, you know, another terrorist shooting, this time in New Zealand. Like for people, faith, like how do you get through that? You can't avoid that. You have to live with that. And how do we do that? How can we dare to trust God in those moments? 
And to be able to declare, the Lord is still my light and my salvation. The Lord is still my fortress, and I will not fear. It seems to me that faith and fear are going to be together, at least in our lifetime. Someone even said that without fear, there is no need for hope, because unless there's something to be feared, there isn't a need to have hope that things will change, right? Our, our hope for forgiveness is rooted in our fear of judgment. Our hope of the resurrection is rooted in our fear of, of death and our mortalities. It's when we're going through these fears, heartache, that we need the faith to sustain us. And, and it's a hard place, this place of waiting with hope. It is. It's not just a, the patience that is required, you know, when we're waiting in line or, you know, when the kids are screaming, you know, are, are we there yet? Th- that, that's one kind of patience. But I'm talking about the kind of waiting, the trusting that is required of us when you're waiting in the hospital. You know, when you're hearing about um, a biopsy report that has to come back. When you've applied for, for a school or a job or an internship or you know, and, and you're waiting to hear what's going to happen. It's the kind of waiting that keeps you up at night and takes away the joy of living. It's then we need this, this hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, waited for. And we have to live within, within this tension the reality of both of our fears and the assurance of deliverance. That's the space that we have to live out our faith. Let me close with this. Most of you have probably heard of Joseph Campbell and his uh, theories uh, of the hero. Um, In his book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he outlines uh, the journey of the archetype hero and the journey that a hero takes uh, that's shared across um, many, many cultures, which he termed the mono-myth, uh, right? Because it's, it's this same idea that he found across all or many, many um, cultures and, and stories. Uh, people like George Lucas uh, credit him uh, for influencing uh, his Star Wars saga. Uh, in fact, if you, if you look at the story of Luke Skywalker in the original series, uh, you, know, you, you can see all the, the earmarks of the, the classic Uh, journey of the the hero. And this is what Campbell says about the hero. He says that the hero typically begins uh, from a very ordinary life, but something happens that propels them toward this adventure. And along the way, they're helped by mentors. They gain knowledge and allies. They learn to fight temptations from within and without. And he says that the hero must face at least one big abyss, a time in the belly of the whale kind of experience, through which they then undergo a metamorphosis, a transformation, even a rebirth. And then from then on, he says, the hero has a fear that protects them without overwhelming them so that they can continue on in their journey to achieve their goal, right? So earlier in their journey, maybe they're not wise enough or they haven't experienced enough to know uh, what to be afraid of or to have an adequate understanding of fear. 
Um, but through this, this abyss, this time in, of the abyss, they come to have a kind of fear that is able to protect them, but, but the, the fear is not so much that it paralyzes them from moving ahead toward their goal, toward the boon, as he calls it. Um, and then once that goal is achieved, the hero is then able to do something even more rewarding, and that is to pass on uh, what they've learned from their journey. So, so I mean, you look at that, and that, that's a good story. That's a good story to have. And as I thought about that, it sounds to me that, that it parallels the journey of faith. It's the same story. It's not unlike what the psalmist is experiencing here. He's learned to how to live with faith alongside fear. It's a fear that pushes him towards seeking God. It's not a fear that completely paralyzes him. And at the end of the psalm, you notice he's not only talking to himself, he's also talking to us. He's telling us to wait, to have hope in the Lord, because he's gone through the trials and the abyss, and he has learned that God can be trusted and encourages us to do the same. I know that some of you are uh, too young, probably, to have gone through the abyss. And you guys are just starting out on your adventure. You've just gotten started. What you thought was the abyss already, um, believe me, it isn't. Much bigger ones are coming. Right now, most of you need mentors and allies. You need knowledge and experience. Some of you who are a little bit older, maybe you're going through something that looks like the dark abyss. And you need more faith, more than ever now. And it may be that none of us or only a few of us has experienced the kind of catastrophic pain that, that the psalmist seems to be alluding to. But we all know the experience of doubt and pain, of being bullied, of being rejected, of being the victims of rumors and misunderstandings. We know the experience of shaking in our faith and of doubting. And I want you to know that you are on a faith adventure. That God has called you to a life like that of the classic hero. That the doubts and the fears that you are experiencing and have experienced and will experience once again are a part of the journey. And as someone has gone through it, the psalmist is telling us, and I'm telling you, that God is trustworthy. You can trust him. You can trust God because of what we know about God in the word made flesh and because of a lifetime of experiences of those who have gone ahead of us. And God tells me, you will look upon the goodness of the Lord again in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Place your hope in the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this season of Lent, as we consider our ways, as we reflect upon our lives, upon our faith, it is easy to recall those times when we 
made bold declarations. And yet, so often in our daily experience, we fear, we wonder, we have anxiety and doubts. God, would you help us? Would you help us through these days? Not to remove all the dangers in our path, but God, help us through them with one another to face them with hope. Face them with hope. To wait upon you because you are trustworthy. To be able to declare once again in the midst of those struggles and as we get through them. You are my light. You are my salvation. You are my fortress. And I need not fear. And to have the confidence because of who you are and because of what you have done for us already. I will see once again the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite you all to the Lord's table.